0: Well, many of you would know the name Matt Chandler. Um, some of you may not, but uh, Matt is a pastor of a pretty large church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, it's called the Village Church. I know some of you enjoy listening to Matt preach. He uh, spoke at the pastor's conference I went to um, this past April, did a great job. Um, he's in his mid-40s now. I think he's probably 44, or 45, something like that, and uh, has three kids. Um, he's been pastoring this church for a long time. But in 2009, so he would have been in his mid-30s there, in 2009, his kids were ages seven, four, and six months. And in that year, in Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Day of 2009, it started out for Matt like any other day. Uh, he got up early, fed his uh, six-month-old daughter a bottle, grabbed a cup of coffee, put his daughter in the swing by the fireplace, and went to sit down, and that's the last thing he remembers. He collapsed in front of the fireplace with a seizure. He's in his mid-30s. He doesn't remember any of this, but he bit through his tongue, and when the paramedics got there, he punched one of the paramedics in the face, doesn't remember any of it. He was rushed to the ER, obviously, and they determined that day that he had a very aggressive type of brain cancer. And this is the type of brain cancer that sort of, uh, it's, it's a tumor there in his frontal lobe, but it sends out branches into uh, the rest of his brain as much as it can, and it's nearly impossible to contain. Well, Matt's the pastor of a big church, he's an influential guy, and the media got a hold of this story pretty quickly, and there were articles all over the place about Matt, but there's one article uh, in the Washington Post that interviewed him, and I want to read you a little bit from that article. Chandler says learning he had brain cancer was, quote, kind of like getting punched in the gut. You take the shot, you try not to vomit, then you get back to doing what you do, believing what you believe. We never felt, still have not felt, betrayed by the Lord or abandoned by the Lord. This is just a few months after this all happened. I can honestly say we haven't asked the question why or wondered why me? Why not somebody else? We just haven't gotten to that place. I'm not saying we won't get there. I'm just saying it hasn't happened yet. Later, Chandler clarified that. There was one moment when he saw a picture on a Christmas card of a man who chronically cheated on his wife and thought, why not that guy? He says it was wicked to think that. This is not surprised God, Chandler says on the drive home. He's not in a panic right now trying to figure out what to do with me or this disease, those things have been warm blankets, man. And these are the situations that are hard. Um, I get emotional even just reading about it because I I put myself in that circumstance and um, it's where our knowledge of God and what we say we believe about him really gets tested. We know God is Good. I mean, we know that. Scripture tells us that. We know he tells us that. We know he's good. We know he's holy. We know he's just. He always does the right thing. We know that he hates evil and he will judge it. And then we look around the world and we see injustice and we see evil running amok. And we see things that consistently seem to be unfair. In Matt's response, why not that guy? I... In some ways, I'm not sure that is as wicked as Matt thinks it is. I think in some ways that is a very natural response based on the belief that God is holy and just. Now, of course, you have to work through that, and that's what we're going to try to do over the next couple of weeks here. But there are times where the wicked really do seem to prosper. It seems like everything is going well for them, and sometimes it looks like God just sort of shrugs and turns around and goes back to whatever else it is that he was doing. That's the way we feel sometimes when we see that happen. And I think that's what entered into Matt's mind at that point. Why not that guy? It's very normal, I think, to have questions and to wrestle with what we know of the character of God and what we see in the world around us. You see this in the Psalms over and over again. The psalmists are wrestling with this reality that God is holy and just and good, and the world is a very unjust place, an unfair place to live. And there are times where I think probably all of us have wanted to approach God and say, why is it like this? Why am I going through this? Why is this struggle here? Why is this uncomfortable? Well, this week and next week, we're going to study a book that is written by A man, a prophet, who had that very opportunity, he was able to ask God why. He saw injustices piling up in the culture around him, among the Jewish people, and he knew that God was just, and he couldn't figure out what God was doing, and so he asked God, what are you doing? And the amazing thing about this is is that God answered him, And he recorded that answer, that entire conversation. And you and I are able to look at this, and we're able to read it, and we're able to learn what to do when what we know of God's character and what we see in the world around us does not match up. So turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. It's right between Nahum and Zephaniah, if that's any help to you, which I assume it won't be. Go to Matthew and turn left and flip, keep flipping pages and you'll find it. All right. Matthew or Habakkuk chapter one. And let me just explain a couple things about this book, because I'm sure maybe some of you read it this week and that's great. Uh, But let me just explain a couple things to kind of set the context for you before we really get into it. Obviously, look at verse one, if you're there. The Oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet saw. So we have a recording here from a prophet, this man, Habakkuk, he is a prophet. And you know how this normally works. Prophets were to take a word from God and they were to bring that word to the people. They were to record it and give it to the people. They represent God to his people. Habakkuk reverses that. That's why this is such a unique book. Habakkuk actually sees an apparent discrepancy between what the way God is acting and what he knows of God's character. And he sees this, and he actually approaches God to question God about that discrepancy, about what's actually happening. And so this is a unique book in Scripture because of that reversal of the traditional role of a prophet. The second thing that you really need to know about this book is this is a conversation. And if you don't understand who is speaking in a given section of this book, you're not going to understand what's happening in the book. You're not going to be able to follow the flow of the logic and the argument and be able to make application from this book. So you have to see who is speaking, and you have to follow the conversation as it proceeds. And so the best way for us to organize our study is to highlight who is speaking, and that's what we're going to do this this week and next. We're going to highlight who's speaking and show you that. And continue through the book in that way. So before we get to that, let me give you the overall message of this book in, in one sentence, okay? God's people respond in faith to God's character, especially in the midst of injustice and difficulty. God's people respond in faith to God's character, especially, and that's the hard part. It's the hard part for me, especially in the midst of injustice and Difficulty. So we get a brief intro in verse 1, and then we get to Habakkuk's first question of God. And his first question there is Habakkuk asks, Why does a just God allow injustice to flourish in Judah? And that's found in chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 4. So this little book was written during the last years of the southern kingdom of Judah being in the land. So the end of the 600s, so 609, 605, somewhere around that, certainly before they were carried off into exile in 597. But in somewhere along that time frame, this little book was written when Habakkuk lived in Judah, probably ministered in the temple in Jerusalem, Remember, the nation of Israel was split into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom because of their sinfulness. This happened. And so the northern kingdom of Israel had been actually carried away into captivity about 100 years before this. So they were gone. They were carried away into captivity And Habakkuk is ministering at this point to the southern kingdom of Judah and he's living in Judah and he's looking around at what is going on and he's seeing all this sin and he's seeing all this wickedness and it's continuing on and on. Look at verse verses two and three. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So Habakkuk sees very clearly that the people of Judah have apparently learned nothing from the northern kingdoms, sin and their exile. They were carried away into Assyria and they had apparently learned nothing from that. And Habakkuk here is lamenting. He's, he's probably representing a group of people who were attempting to follow God's law. And they were attempting to obey and to live righteously before the Lord. And they're looking around them and they're seeing sin and injustice and violence in their culture going unchecked. And they're perplexed by this. And so they cry out and lament. How long? That's a classic phrase of lament for biblical writers. Why won't God act now against injustice? Look again at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? He describes God as sort of casually or idly sitting by. He's sitting there on the couch. He's watching and he's not doing anything about this. Sometimes when a tragedy happens that will gather National media attention and everybody's focused on it. Occasionally during those times, something terrible's gone on. You'll hear people say, Where was God when this was happening? And I actually think that's what Habakkuk is asking here. Where are you, God? How long is this going to go on? Are you even concerned about all the violence and all the iniquity and all the sin that is happening here? There's so much of it going on that it seems like God's law that he has laid down is not even working anymore. Look at verse four. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The law is paralyzed there. That's a fascinating way to phrase it. God's law is supposed to be the basis of their society, of their culture, and it's unable to work at all. It cannot and it is not moving in the lives of people. It's not making an impact on how people live and what they do. They ignore it. And that leads to a situation where the wicked surround the righteous. The wicked are the predominant group in the society and in the culture. And so what Habakkuk's doing here. When he mentions God's law is he's looking back to the books of Moses. He's looking back to the Torah and the promises of judgment that God laid down. If Israel would sin and he's seeing those promises and he's seeing what's happening and it's continuing and it's going on and on and on. And he sees that and he's saying, God, it sure looks like you are letting this go and you are no longer concerned about the people breaking, breaking your law and ignoring your covenant. And it sure seems like justice has been flipped on its head. It's been perverted. And you are actually letting the wicked thrive. That's the situation that Habakkuk looks out and he sees. And one author described Habakkuk this way. And I like this. He says, the prophet is weary, weary with the world as it is. And I think one of the things that you and I can learn from this first question of Habakkuk here is that it's okay to come to God with lament. It's okay to come to him. This is something that biblical authors do. It's okay to come to him with lament. The things are not as they should be, God. And in fact, if you and I don't recognize that reality, that the world is not as it should be, that just injustice seems to be thriving, then we really aren't paying attention. We're not noticing What's going on, and we're not valuing what God values, I would say it's actually appropriate to see injustice in the world and to say, How long, O Lord? How long? When are you going to set things right? That ought to be our heart. And so these questions from the prophet are appropriate and are good questions to ask. And so he asks, and amazingly enough, God responds. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, God answers, I will do something. I will raise up the Babylonians to judge sinful Judah. That's how God responds. In verse 5, you don't see that God doesn't say the Lord answered him, but the change in person there goes to first person. God is obviously the one talking. And even from the content of the next few verses, you can tell God is the one speaking here. He's the one responding to Habakkuk's question. Let's read verse five. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And the point here is God's saying, I have not ignored Judah's sin. I am fully aware of what has been going on. And in fact, I have been working at the international level. Look among the nations, I'm working behind every door, I'm working all the time, and I am going to address their wickedness. And when you think about the sheer scale of God's authority in this verse, look among the nations because I'm doing something that you wouldn't even believe. The response that he calls for here of wonder and amazement is appropriate. The fact that God rules over everything by his sovereign hand, even these nations like Babylon and Assyria, is amazing. It reminds me of Psalm 115. Very simple statement, but our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's in charge. This rings true here. He does what he wants to do. And he's always working. Even when we can't see it, he is behind the scenes doing everything, as we'll see later, for his honor and his glory. And verse 6 tells us exactly what he plans to do. Look there. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So the Assyrians different group of people. They had been the ones to carry off Israel into exile, the Northern kingdom about a hundred years earlier. But now a new international power has come on the scene. Assyria is not at the level they were, and God has completely changed things now. And he has been sovereign over the entire process. And he has raised up the Babylonians. They are being positioned by God to judge the Southern kingdom, of Judah. Now make no mistake here, God is the one raising up this nation and empowering them. So don't gloss over that. Think about the implications of that for just a second. Think about the details of what that means. Okay. All of the events that led to Babylon's ascent to international power are under the direct authority of God. Everything, all the details of what's happening, the positioning of rulers, the recruitment of armies, the battles, everything that happens. He says here, I am raising up the Babylonians. Nothing moves without God's involvement. Now, notice how he describes the Babylonians. Verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read the whole thing in one pop so you can get a sense and a feel here for this nation that God is raising up to judge the nation of Judah. For behold, verse 6, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Now, that's quite a description of this nation that God is raising up here. And I want you to notice several things about this. There's a lot we could say here, there's a lot going on, but just highlight a few things here. First, in verse 7, he says, Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they're not basing what they do on any sort of divine law or divine justice or authority. They are their own law and they determine what they think is good and right to do. They basically do whatever they want to. And it's fascinating here that back in verse four, the Jews had rejected God's justice, right? The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So in Judah... They weren't following God's law. They weren't heeding his commandments and his understanding of justice. And so now Judah is going to suffer under justice that is brought to them by the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians will dictate what is done to them. They will decide what's just and good and right. And the second thing to notice, I'm sure you picked up on this, is just how cruel and fearsome the Babylonians are. They're violent, violent people. He describes them as bitter, as hasty. Another word for that would be impetuous. They don't care, and they're going to slaughter people and rule over people however they want to. They're compared here in verse 8 to leopards and wolves. Our family loves to go to the zoo. We enjoy it quite a bit, and... We love looking at the different animals. And one of the exhibits that is the most unsettling to me is the wolves. When you see them and they're up kind of prowling around the cage and, you know, you think, oh, wolves are like dogs. Eh, not really. <laughs> they're, they're long and they're slender and they just have this look about them that is intimidating. I would not want to be walking through the woods by myself And encounter a pack of wolves. That would be one of the most terrifying things that I can think of to have happen. And leopards are similar, right? Any of these animals. Well, he describes their armies and their horses as swift and violent and bent on destruction. And they are going forward like a pack of wolves. And they are going to devour whoever comes into their path. The last thing that sort of goes with that, that I want you to notice about this description is the bottom line for the Babylonians is they are self-sufficient, they are arrogant, and they are prideful. And that is what drives them. They think they are the top dog. I mean, you can see throughout this description how often God describes them as arrogant. I mean, look at verse 6. They seize dwellings not their own. They take what is not theirs. Verse 7, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are the starting point. Verse 8, their horsemen press proudly on. Verse 10, they don't even care about kings. They scoff at them. They laugh at them. And verse 11, look at how he summarizes them whose own might is their God. The most important thing to these people is their own pride, their own might, their own strength. That's how they operate. So God has answered Habakkuk here. Now, as you're reading this, he tells him the Babylonians are going to come in. I am going to do something about the wickedness in Judah. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to carry uh, Judah off into exile. So maybe as you're listening to that, there are questions forming in your mind. Wait a minute. God is just. He's holy And the way he has just described Babylon, they are arrogant, they are cruel, and they are violent. So how can a holy and a just God use a people like this as an instrument to bring divine justice on his own sinful people? How does that work? And that's exactly the question that Habakkuk comes back with and asks God. So Habakkuk asks, why does the just God allow injustice to flourish in Judah? And God answers, I will raise up the Babylonians to judge sinful Judah. And Habakkuk says, now, wait a minute. How can such a wicked people be your instrument of justice? Where is justice when these are the people that you're going to use to make the law work? So Habakkuk responds, verse 12. Again, you don't see it say Habakkuk responds, but you see a change in person there. He's directing his request back to God. And look what he does in verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. He essentially makes a confession of faith. He is recounting who God is and affirming what he believes about the character of God. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. What do we know about God? What does Habakkuk know about God? He's everlasting. He's the covenant God. He's the I am spoken of in Exodus chapter 3. He's the holy one. He's of purer eyes than to look upon injustice and evil. He is the rock who cannot shift, who cannot change. So if all of those characteristics were true of him when he made his covenant with Israel, Habakkuk says these things are still true of him, and I know they're true of him. And he affirms these qualities to be true of God, but then he looks around and he goes, I, I, don't, I can't match up what I know of God to what I'm seeing happening in the world around me. How is this working? And if you look back at verse 12, this cuts to the heart of the matter. He says, you have ordained them as a judgment, right? God, you just told me you're the one who's raising up Babylon to judge sinful Judah. You're the one who's doing this. He placed them where they are. You know, sometimes you'll hear like if there's a political family or a group and you'll hear someone talk about who the real power broker is. In that particular family, right? It's the person who really makes things go and makes things work. Well, that's who God is here when it comes to the Babylonians. I mean, he's the one raising them up. They would not be where they are without him. And he just told Habakkuk that, and so Habakkuk recognizes it. Verse 13 says it even more clearly. Look at the end of verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, that comparison there at the end of the verse is interesting because Judah is hardly righteous. (laughs) Okay. I mean, we've just heard about their sin, but when you compare them to Babylon... And when you know that there are people within God's chosen people, like Habakkuk, who are trying to worship God and follow his law, there's at least some of those people, a remnant who is there. And when you know that Judah is God's, they're God's chosen people, they have the covenant with him, when you know all of those things, how can God raise up an incredibly wicked, cruel, violent, arrogant nation to judge his own people? How does that work? And Habakkuk fleshes out the implications of that. Look at verse 14. If you're going to give Babylon the victory, he's saying to God, you are essentially reducing mankind to the animal kingdom. I mean, that's what it boils down to. This is how things work now. There really isn't any justice. It's survival of the fittest. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And because it's like this, this is what Babylon's going to do. Look at verses 15 and 16. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. If this is the way it is, if it's Big fish eat smaller fish. Then Babylon is the strongest one on the international scene right now. And so they're going to do whatever they want. They're going to swallow up these other nations. They're going to bring their justice into these groups of peoples. They're going to be cruel. They're going to be violent. They're going to be wicked. And that's the way it's going to work now. They trust in themselves. They trust in their own implements of war, their own weapons. So what's to stop them from continuing on that path of destruction? Look at verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I mean, if they can do this to Judah, what's to stop them from doing it to everyone else? And what's to stop them from ruling over the entire world and thinking that their own strength and their own might has done this? So... When you see this conversation going on here, when God answers Habakkuk's first question, it actually brings up a greater dilemma than the first question even did. One author phrased it this way. At stake here is the very nature and character of God as shown by how Yahweh rules history. So, I mean, these are, these are significant questions that he's asking here. But what's amazing is with this tension... And I hope you're feeling some tension here as you're reading through this. It's a little uncomfortable. But with this tension, look what Habakkuk does. Look how he responds in verse 1 of chapter 2. He asks the second question. He says, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he acknowledges the difficulty. He sees the tension, but he at the same time affirms what he knows from God's word to be true of God. He holds to those things and he doesn't arrogantly dismiss God. He doesn't see tension in his experience of the world and what God says and then say, yeah, so God must not be good or he must not be holy or he must not be just. He sees these things, he asks the question, and then he positions himself to wait and to do what he must do, which is ultimately to trust God in the midst of these difficulties. He waits for an answer, and God does answer. Chapter 2, verse 2, all the way to chapter 2, verse 20. And we're only going to get a couple of verses into this, and then we'll finish it up next week. But God answers, live by faith that I will do justice and ultimately that I will be glorified. And that's the end game and that's the final goal. I will do justice. I will be consistent and I am being consistent with who I am. And ultimately all of this, all the workings will be done for my honor and my glory. And your response to that Habakkuk is to trust me, to live by faith. And as God answers Habakkuk's question, his answer is not just for Habakkuk. He wants him to write it down so that everyone else in Judah can hear this answer as well. This is an answer that Habakkuk must publish for all people to have. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Write it down, Habakkuk. Write down what you will receive from the Lord. Write it as simply and as clearly as possible. Why? So that he may run who reads it. What's that mean? Well, if God's message is written down on tablets and posted in a public place, then people will come. And in the midst of judgment that's going to come on Judah, in the midst of difficulty, this will be posted. This will be there. And people who read this may run and herald this vision and this commandment and this news and share it with others. They take it and they go and they share this with others. Why do they need to do that? Look at verse three. Four, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Why does he need to write it down? So that people can take it to other people and so that when there seems to be a delay, when God seems to be not acting as we would like him to and in the timing that we want him to and in what seems to be injustice, when all of that happens, it's written, it's there and we can look to it and we can trust his word there. Even in the midst of waiting for God to act. Believe that he will act on his promises. And and really, that is the message of the book of Habakkuk. That's the centerpiece of it. That's the message that God's people in Judah and that certainly you and I need to hear. It's the heart of God's answer, and it's found in verse 4. When there's seeming injustice, when evil seems to be prevailing, when things are not going as you want them to and as you think they should when there seems to be a discrepancy between who you know God is from his word and what's happening in your life and in the world, verse 4 is the answer. Behold, his soul is puffed up. There are two ways to live. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. There are two ways to respond to life. You can live like the Babylonians. And the sinful Jews. And you can arrogantly trust in yourself or you can look to God even in the time of delay, in the time in between. You can look to God alone and you can trust his character of holiness and justice and goodness. And you can do that even when the world around you doesn't make sense. Even when the wicked seem to triumph in the culture And even when everything is breaking down faster than a bowl of ice cream in the middle of the desert. And it's not going to be too much longer before everything is complete chaos. And you're looking around and you're wondering where God is. And God tells Habakkuk the righteous will respond to that circumstance by living by faith. Those who are rightly related to God have faith in him as the determining principle of their lives. This is how they respond to everything. And let me just, when you use that word faith in our culture today, sometimes people talk about faith in faith. If you just have some sort of nebulous faith, that's not what this is talking about. It's not faith in faith. It is faith in the character of God and what we know to be true of him. It's intentional. It's specific trust in his sovereignty and his authority. And that's how scripture repeatedly presents the way that sinful human beings can come into a right relationship with God. It's through faith. Sinful human beings trust self. That's how we come in our fallen and broken state. That's the way the Babylonians were. That's the way the sinful Jews were. The only way to be reconciled to God is to and to be forgiven of our sin is to turn to him in faith and believe his words. That's how scripture presents this. That is the defining characteristic of those who will be rightly related to God. Remember what Genesis 15 says about Abraham. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God made a promise. If you read this passage right before this, God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham took God at his word. And if you remember in the life of Abraham, there was quite a delay between the making of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And Abraham believed God and he kept on believing God and it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. This is how you and I as sinful human beings are rightly related to God, how we are reconciled to God. It is by faith. He knew God's character, Abraham did, and he believed that God would do what he said he would do. And so this little phrase here in Habakkuk 2 4, the righteous shall live by faith. I know you've heard this phrase, even if you've never read the book of Habakkuk, because it's it's in key places in the New Testament. I mean, this really is the cornerstone of how we relate to God. The righteous shall live by faith. This is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Really, Paul's whole argument is based on this idea. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We receive a verdict of righteousness before a holy God by believing in his word, by taking him at his word. When he says, you are sinful human beings, you have broken my law, and I sent my son in order to die for you. And if you will trust him, repent of your sins and trust him, then you will be reconciled to me. That is the gospel message of the book of Romans. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. And that idea, that concept of trusting in God's character and his word and his work through Jesus Christ is based on the way he worked in the Old Testament and what he tells Habakkuk here. Take me at my word. That's the good news of the gospel. We must hear it and believe it. And that's the response of faith that Habakkuk was called to here and that's the response of faith that each one of us are being called to. That, that faith is how you enter the kingdom. It's by God giving you that gift of faith and you responding to him. And that faith is how we continue in the kingdom. That is how you grow. That is how we are sanctified. That is how we put sin to death and make progress in holiness. That is how we respond to tragedy in life. It's by taking God at his word and by trusting him and looking to his character and believing that he is who he said he is. And he will do what he said he will do. Even if there is a delay. (laughs) And that's why verse three is so powerful for me. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's coming. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And so what we're going to see next week is, as we continue on here, God is going to tell Habakkuk, listen, trust me, I will respond to Babylon. I will deal with Babylon. They're not going to take over the whole earth in injustice. I will judge them for their own arrogance and their cruelty and their wickedness, and I will judge them, and ultimately, when I do that, I will receive glory. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2, just a little preview here. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the end game. That's the goal that he tells Habakkuk. And then chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we'll see next week, is a psalm that Habakkuk wrote. And it's an unbelievably beautiful expression of faith. This is what faith looks like. It looks back to the way God has dealt with his people in the Exodus and it looks forward to a time when even if I don't have anything, even if everything has fallen apart, I will trust God. So that's what we're going to see next week. Let's pray. God, we need your strength to be able to trust you. It's so difficult at times. Our experience shapes us so much. The difficulties of life shape us, the injustice in the world. We see those things. And it's so hard at times to look to your word and to trust your character, your holiness, your justice, your goodness. But I pray that this book, this little book in the Old Testament, would bring these truths to bear on our lives in powerful ways that you are holy, you are the everlasting one, you are the rock, you do not change. And even if there's a delay, We can trust you. And faith has to be the guiding principle of our lives, not just faith in faith, but faith in you. And that's our desire. That's our prayer for ourselves, for each one of us here. Give us the grace we need to believe you no matter what. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his work for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.